This is View from the Hilltop, GPPR's new roundtable podcast with us, the editorial board. This is not the complete editorial board. It'll be a rotating cast. Um, and whatever guests we decide to include on a week-to-week basis. This is episode one that we're calling GPPR's Summer Vacation. Um, I'll go ahead and do the rundown, but first, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, my name is Shane McCarthy. I'm a senior online editor with GPPR. My name is Austin. I'm senior spring editor for GPPR, focusing on media. And my name is Justin Goss. I'm the editor-in-chief this year of GPPR, and we will be joined later by another one of our senior online editors, Delaney Luna. So tonight, uh, it's September 9th, by the way, we'll be talking to you about our what, what we've published over the summer, starting with our... Uh, announcement for our call for papers for our spring edition, which is GPPR's flagship. Then we'll move into some stuff from earlier in the summer. Uh, Shane's going to talk about a guest article that we had from a McCourt alum on uh, the effects of drone strikes. Then we'll be talking about Delaney's article focusing on the future of Dodd-Frank and Wall Street regulation. And then we'll talk about our most recent article that actually went live this morning on the urban-rural divide and broadband adoption. We'll preview some future content, and then we'll get into our closing segment of So That Happened. So without further ado, Austin, you want to take it away. So you introduced our spring edition theme. What is the spring edition theme, and what can folks look forward to this spring? The spring edition theme is disruption. Disruption means that a lot of what we do in our lives is going to be changing soon and has already changed a little bit. Companies like Uber, Tesla, Airbnb are changing the way we do very simple things like get around, like rent rooms. Um, We are benefiting from this. Our lives are better than before, are safer than before, but there are side effects. Um, These changes may lead to job losses, they may lead to um, worsening inequality, and worst of all, they are incompatible with the policies that we have today. So as policymakers, we have to figure out how to maximize the potential of these changes while making sure they don't hurt anyone. So would you say the effects of disruption are wholly positive, wholly negative, mixed bag? I mean, honestly, it depends on what your uh, political leanings are. If you're leftist, you think that it's going to end the world because it's going to take everyone's jobs away and uh, siphon it into uh, the uh, Silicon Valley. But as a policymaker, um, you know, it's sort of a mixed bag at this point. Research hasn't proven either way that it's going to be this amazing uh, driver for growth or something that's going to kill millions of jobs. So I think that it's a neutral thing, and I hopefully conveyed that through the article. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so some of our readers, they might, they might see this as we're primarily focused on federal policy, uh, given that we go to school in Washington, D.C. Um, but it seems like the changes that you're describing are more wholesale, that this is a total sea change that affects all levels of governance and not just the United States, uh, developing countries too and developed countries outside of, outside of the United States. What what do you, what do you think? Is this primarily a matter or a series of matters that's going to be addressed through federal legislation within the U.S., or can we expect other responses? 
I think you're totally right. It really does um, go through all legislatures, all governments in the world. It is a sea change uh, for every developing or developed country. The reason why I focused a little bit um, you know, more on federal government in my article is because that is where I see the most potential for a policy to drag behind progress. While various states like California and Pennsylvania have um, advanced policies that do things like allow for a limited amount of self-driving cars, the federal government hasn't reacted as quickly. And that's because, as we all know, the federal government has been gridlocked for a very long time. I was just wondering, you know, I think a lot of the discussion around the new quote-unquote gig economy and uh, like, like you brought up, it deals with not just the number of workers, the number of people who lose their job or gain jobs or whatever, but the quality of that employment and the security that that ultimately brings. Um, for example, talking about Uber, Lyft, or one of these uh, different companies, how that's impacting the traditional taxicab medallion system or traditional uh, unions, I guess, in that regard. Has there been sort of a general theme among any of these uh, or all of these uh, different enterprises that are now coming out in terms of questions about labor security? These, these enterprises are all unified in, um, you know, they came up with this thing called the gig economy, and it's really based on hiring people on a per gig basis, which at first sounds really good because it allows you to make money very easily. If you have a car, or if you have, even have a, have a bike for like services like Postmates, you can you know, sign up, get a quick background check, and start making money right away. But because of the way um, the regulations are written, they don't need to give you any kind of workers' comp, any kind of health insurance, or anything like that for the most part. And there have been lots of lawsuits about this. Uber likes to say that the people working for them are not employees, but contractors. And um, they settle out of court for large amounts of money just so they can keep that classification. Because if they ever had to pay their workers as if they were real employees, that would mess with their entire model of success. So the main thing is that it's easier to make money in this new model, but it's harder to make a living. What would you say are some advantages or signs of progress of disruption that are also being slowed down by outmoded policies? Well, I think the most potential that we have, I already mentioned, the most potential um, you know, for disruption in a positive way is with self-driving cars and trucks. You know, car accidents kill uh, more Americans, and it's the same thing around the world than almost any other cause of death besides, I think, like heart disease um, and a few other things. So if we had a way to have all cars self-regulate and talk to each other on the road, and this is very far off, but we're getting there, that would... Um, you know, we would live longer on average because of that, because there would be, we would be less at risk of getting into car accidents. So that is where we have the most potential. And I think, you know, in terms of federal policy, that's where we're most head, you know, held back. We haven't figured out yet, you know, this is not just because of gridlock, it's also because we haven't figured out, you know, these ethical questions. If there's a situation that self-driving cars in, in which hitting someone's inevitable, you know, what does the car do? Hit the fewest amount of people? Um, you know, decide which people are worth the least. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, there's questions like that. If, if there's a car accident, who's liable? Is it Tesla for, like, having a bug in its software? Is it the person at the wheel? We don't know. So we have to answer questions like that before we can truly have a self-driving, um, you know, system of cars. 
So I feel like that's where we have the most potential, and that's where we're the most held back by current policy. Interesting. So these are both complex legal questions as well as ethical questions. You basically just yes. described the trolley problem for anybody who's taken an intro philosophy class. Exactly. Imagine having a computer decide that. People can't decide the solution to that problem. Huge issue. Um, so where, where and when can interested authors submit their ideas to the Spring Edition? All right, well, um, first of all, you can go to GPP, um, gppreview.com and it'll, all the information will be there, but um, I'll just tell you right now that you can email your potential paper to execspring at gppreview.com by January 2nd, 2017. Um, if you have anything that's relevant that's good, please send it to us. Fantastic, looking forward to it. So next, let's pivot over to one of our earlier articles of the summer, uh, an article about drone strikes by Emily Manna. Uh, Shane, you, you handled, you handled uh, a lot of the publication of this article. You want to give us a recap of what this was about? Sure, that's right. And I will say right off the bat, this is the first of a series of adopted uh, student pieces that we're going to be uh, hopefully rolling out over the course of the next semester uh, and the next year. Um, so yes, this article uh, deals with the question of drone ethics, but ultimately what exactly we're trying to get out of our targeted drone strikes. Um, obviously, there's a lot of discussion in DC regarding the ethics of the drone program. Ultimately, though, the consensus seems to be you know, going forward after having these discussions that they're an unpleasant necessity, that you know, despite all of the issues that arise with drone strikes, whether that be civilian casualties uh, or whatever else, uh, it's better than whatever the alternative is, whether that's an invasion or other military options. Um, so there's been a question about the ethical nature of it, but there's also been a lot of question about effectiveness. Uh, how exactly, how uh, much are these drone strikes accomplishing? Uh, this paper specifically uh, deals with Pakistan. Uh, between the years of 2006 and 2012, where we really saw the height of the drone program. Um, uh, unlike Afghanistan, where uh, the drone program is run by the Air Force, in places like Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, the United States, because we're not formally at war with these nations, uh, does it through the auspices of the CIA, which is another uh, contentious issue that's been sort of discussed, uh, especially during this political season. Um, but the idea is that a lot of the traditional um, questions about effectiveness deals with how many leaders of these organizations have we been able to take out. Uh, in Pakistan, we're dealing primarily with Al-Qaeda, with the Taliban. Uh, so uh, what has the effectiveness of drone strikes been in this regard? How many of the quote-unquote leaders of these organizations have we been able to take out using these? Um, some journalists, analysts, other officials have suggested that you know, these drone programs may actually tend to cause an increase in terrorist activity and strength uh, going and uh, countering that general kind of consensus and notion about uh, what these drone strikes are actually accomplishing. Um, so this article uh, and this analysis starts to address that question. Um, this research was a little bit unique from other studies on drones uh, because there are really a dearth of quantitative analyses to back up the claims that are being made about the program. Um, obviously, when you're dealing with things with military nature, there is always a question of accessibility of data, how much the government is actually willing to tell you. Um, but in, for this reason, there has been a, a lack of uh, hardcore study in this regard. So this is just trying to take a further step in that direction. Um, instead of focusing on decapitation of leadership, what it does is uh, evaluates the impact that drone strikes have on later terrorist attacks in a specific region, uh, whether that number increases, decreases based on 
previous uh, levels of attack within a specific area, both immediately after a drone strike and then uh, a month later. Obvious question, maybe, but why might we expect to see an increase in terrorist attacks after a drone strike? Um, I think it's important to sort of understand the inroads that a lot of these organizations have made. We're talking about tribal regions of Pakistan, very rural, very disconnected from the central state. And so in a lot of cases, al-Qaeda or the Taliban will sort of act as a proxy for the state government, providing public services, uh, other things in that regard, in order to build these inroads with the local population. And so in these cases, when you have a drone strike, it's seen as uh, a bigger affront almost. Not to mention, like I did earlier, the civilian uh, casualties in other regards that uh, have sort of built up animosity over the drone program. Mm. Ultimately, though, uh, based on this study, there is a statistically significant rise in the number of terrorist attacks, both immediately after and one month after these drone attacks for these regions of the Waziristan region of Pakistan. Um, as someone who wrote about Pakistan, I, I, those, those, uh, that analysis makes perfect sense. Um, what these drone strikes have done, at least on a not you know qualitative level, just by you know reading articles and seeing what people think, it's created this impression that the United States is you know turned you know is a colonialist power that's just trying to kill as many Pakistanis as possible, and you know there's this campaign of you know this you know misinformation going on and allows um, you know these terrorists to uh, recruit more people because mm. you know they're portraying themselves as victims and as innocent Pakistanis as victims. And this allows, you know, the, the recruiting base um, to, you know, they get more excited about joining because they see the United States as the enemy because of this. So there's a whole psychological element to why um, these uh, groups may be strengthened by drone strikes. I mean, I spent two years writing about Pakistan and there were drone strikes the entire time. And every time I wrote an article, the Pac you know, the Taliban got more dangerous. The last article I wrote, I said, at this point, you know, peace will never work. And... You know, after that, you know, then there was that terrorist attack at the school where like 120 school children died and there was never any peace talks after that. Mm -hmm. So there is a psychological element. And what we have to realize about drone strikes is that, you know, the metric of how many leaders we're killing may not really matter in the end when all you're doing is angering the people. So perhaps counterintuitively, there's a mm -hmm. real human element toward that goes into studying the drone program. Absolutely, as well. Um, it's worth mentioning, uh, over the summer, the Obama administration started to uh, become a somewhat more open uh, about their uh, drone program in non-combat zones. So again, Pakistan, Somalia, Yemen, uh, between 2009-2015, the length of the Obama administration. Um, they were reporting primarily on uh, civilian casualties mm -hmm. based on you know, public clamor for that information. Uh, but the White House estimates were severely lower than uh, those done by independent non-governmental organizations, think tanks, um, and other, uh, other organizations uh, in D.C. and around the world. So, again, you know, the, the issue that we're dealing with in terms of studying this third topic is you are dealing with uh, questions of the military nature. Sometimes, you know, you may not necessarily even have the specifics on the number of people killed, uh, who it is conducting these attacks. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of a big question. How much uh, are we going to be able to sort of take this step further? But again, you know, it always comes back to what exactly are we trying to achieve with this drone program? Um, obviously, you know, Al Qaeda has sort of been overshadowed in the few years with the rise of ISIL, but it's definitely still maintains a strong presence in that area of the world. Uh, still, you know, we obviously still have a military presence there as well. So this is an issue that we're going to have to continue to deal with and question for years to come. Mm. So to that to that point. What were some of the limitations of this study? Because you talked about how 
drone strikes and their impacts are extremely hard to, to observe just because they take place in a military context. So I'm imagining that this, this study, though it showed a, cor a positive correlation in terrorist attacks following drone strikes, mm -hmm. I imagine that this research is not exhaustive. No, of course not. This deals with uh, the specific Waziristan region, uh, so it doesn't include information from Yemen, from Somalia, from other locations. Uh, and I guess the, question, the real question that uh, needs to sort of be brought up is um, external factors. Are there other things that are impacting the levels of terrorist activity? In this regard, uh, we weren't able to obtain data on Pakistani military operations, um, which may tend to have a, a larger effect on terrorist activity within a certain area. Um, that said, this study challenges assumptions about the U.S. drone program, whether it's a strategic success or not, and basically just uh, asks for further analysis to be done. So, in some compelling piece, maybe the U.S. drone, drone program not achieving everything it hopes to, but for our more statistically inclined listeners, there may be problems of exogeneity involved in this study, where maybe there are variables not mentioned in this study that play a role in explaining the study's results. And ultimately, taking it back to you know the research question, how do you measure success in this regard? Fair point. Yeah, um, I had a follow-up to this. Maybe an interesting article to write kind of following up the cost-benefit analysis would be the flip side of, you know, we're weighing killing leaders versus the potential increase in terrorist attacks afterwards. I think an interesting follow-up mm. if the data is available to see um, if attacks decrease when leaders are killed. Absolutely. I don't know if that's a possible analysis, but it's interesting to think about. Definitely. And glad you joined us, Delaney. Yeah, hello. <laughs> A little, little bit of a uh, turbulent time navigating the cobblestones up, yeah, the, up the hill. Yeah, getting through downtown D.C. at rush hour is not easy. <laughs> Who would have thought? It's crazy. <laughs> um, but to that point, we're going to go ahead and move over to Delaney's article from the mm -hmm. summer about uh, the future of Dodd-Frank, uh, where you presented some history on, on the act, uh, the policy, and then gave us a look at what the world might look like for Dodd-Frank uh, based on who wins the next presidential election. Yes. Yeah, so basically um, I went into the effects of Dodd-Frank over the last six years. It's mostly increased transparency like it was supposed to. There have been some unintended consequences with increases in unregulated activity, trying to escape you know, the regulatory hurdles. Um, but the future of Dodd-Frank depends on whether or not Hillary or Trump is elected, and Clinton would basically continue what has been done under the Obama administration. She's looking to tackle shadow banking more effectively, increase risk fees. Um, she'd like to strengthen the Volcker rule, close loopholes, basically just kind of tie up the loose ends of the existing legislation. Um, and Trump has only said it's terrible and I would repeal it, basically. And so extrapolating on that and also on Republicans' position, um, they would attempt to undo what's been done with Dodd-Frank so far. And they have been successful in doing that already. Um, they've been tackling it piece by piece, but recently um, there have been shifts towards like a broader attack on financial policy as a whole relating to conservative governance. So how that plays out under the Trump administration would, you know, is left to be seen. 
Um, like so many other things with the Trump potential. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a wild card, but um, basically my expectation would be if Hillary is elected, she's going to slowly strengthen it. Um, it'll be difficult if the GOP retains control of Congress because they've already been rolling back elements of it. Um, and there's just a general aversion to raising prices and taxes on businesses. Mm. But um, under Trump, I think it would be hard to undo the agencies that have been created just because that's a whole other um, animal. But I think he'd get a lot of support in reducing the fees, reducing slowly but surely um, all the benefits we've had from Dodd-Frank so far. So in the article, you put it pretty succinctly in terms of in terms of the trade-off that Dodd Frank has had for uh, banking and lending. What what was that again? Yeah, basically Dodd Frank is um, it's a trade-off between market autonomy and safety. So we're giving up, you know, investors' ability to use whatever market instruments they'd like you know, invest in whatever um, derivative markets, any kind of um, unregulated spaces that they were allowed to access before the financial crisis. Um, but, and you know, that has costs, you know, they have to go through all sorts of regulatory hurdles to um, go about business as usual. But the benefit is that we are safe, safer from a future financial crisis that almost destroyed the world economy. So I think it's a pretty fair trade-off. Um, you know, no legislation is perfect. Dodd-Frank has had issues, but, um, you know, the alternative, I think the decision is pretty clear. <laughs> has there been any indication uh, from Congress, you know, Elizabeth Warren or Chuck Schumer or someone in that regard, of uh, ways that they would sort of take this further if they were able to retake the Democratic majority in the Senate? Uh, and sort of push to expand this bill at all under a potential Clinton administration? Um, I'm not sure what Warren and you know people like her and Schumer have put out there. I know that there's general Democratic support for it. Um, and you know Warren has been pushing forward the Truth and Settlements Act, you know, supplementary legislation towards increasing transparency in other fields. So I would assume that they'd be supportive of Hillary's augmentations to the bill, but I don't know what other fields are they trying to expand that kind of transparency into? Um, well, the Truth and Settlements Act is um, increasing transparency in government settlements with, um, you know, private agencies. So if the government is involved in like a legal dispute with one of those agencies, um, and they're settling for money, um, Warren and the supporters of this bill would like that to be public record. All right. Mm -hmm. Have you, sorry, one, one, one more thing. Um, so I feel like you maybe implicitly answered this, but if if pressed and you had to do like a blind taste test, regardless of who was supporting the policy, um, which, which scenario do you think is the better policy outcome? Um, I definitely think that um, scenario A, where it's Clinton, but um, you know, even if it wasn't her, strengthening the regulations, tying up loose ends, um, fixing areas of Dodd-Frank that haven't worked as well and extending it in areas that it has, I think is pretty clearly a better alternative to just going back to having very little to no regulation in a lot of these financial spaces. So in your opinion, Dodd-Frank, more, more, more good than harm? More good than harm. And like I said, it's definitely not 
you know, oh, it's been totally great and there's been no problems. Like, there have been issues. It's increased costs for small businesses, all of that. But I think in the long run, the trade-off is, is great. Great stuff. I was just going to ask the same thing, yeah. um, whether it did any harm, but you kind of answered that question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mostly just increased costs for businesses. All right. Not nearly the amount of harm that Trump says it has been doing. <laughs> it has not, you know, destroyed our economy. Stock market is fine, you know. So, has he actually articulated a position on Dodd Frank? Yeah, I mean, his only position was it's terrible, Dodd. and I'm gonna repeal it. And I'm, I believe he said something about it, you know, hurting the economy, stagnating it. Although I don't know if he used that word. Does he ever use middling terms for anything? <laughs> it seems like everything is either very, very good or yeah, very, very bad. This was just terrible. Got it. So. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He speaks at an eighth grade level, pretty yeah. much. I think, I think that's what it is. It might be less. We're well, five. We're Kevin says five. <laughs> yeah, more more of my um, research on his position was based on what other Republicans think. Fair enough. Since he's representing their platform. Now. Fair enough. To clarify. We're not making normative judgments about Donald Trump. We are nonpartisan. We are nonpartisan. Some, some. This is a policy analysis. <laughs> some, some people, some people speak very well at an eighth grade level, and that he, I mean, he has a message that's translating to a, to a lot of folks. Yeah, we we are nonpartisan in talking about policy when there is policy to talk when about. Fair point. <laughs> and rounding it back to policy. Um, I guess I'll go ahead and grab the mic, so to speak, and talk about uh, my article that came out this morning, as a matter of fact. Um, so I wrote this a little bit, a, a little while ago, um, and a version of it uh, was actually run by NTIA, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, but GPPR, uh, we, did, we did our own version of it, um, where it focuses on the divide in internet adoption rates for Americans living in rural versus urban areas. And that's defined by the US Census, where the data that I used for this came from the current population survey, specifically NTIA's supplement to it, talking about, or where they asked questions of census, census respondents about their internet technology usage habits. Um, and there and so there, there are some findings that maybe listeners might expect. Where uh, I found that folks in rural areas consistently adopt at lower percentage rates than folks in urban areas. That might seem obvious to you, um, but there are some fairly distressing upshots of this. Other than just people aren't using the internet as much in rural areas, where you see um, already disadvantaged or less likely adopting groups. So along uh, racial, ethnic, income, and educational demographics. So for instance, um, respondents to the census identifying as black or non-white Hispanic or Native American already in the general US population don't adopt the internet as frequently as uh, folks identifying as white or Asian do. In rural areas, they're even less likely to adopt than they would be in the population in general, and certainly in, uh, less so than their urban counterparts. Um, same thing for folks at lower levels of income and lower levels of education. But interestingly, 
folks with higher levels of education, so we're talking about people with a college degree or more who live in rural areas, don't face any drop-off compared to the general population or those or people with similar levels of education living in urban areas. And so that's really interesting. And so it's possible that these are unique types of persons where their education puts put them in certain jobs that make them impervious to the divide, or it's possible that education correlates strongly with higher internet adoption rates, which could which could be great news because um, we're, we're using the internet right now. We, we think it's pretty swell, um, and we think we, uh, the internet has a lot of utility uh, that's been demonstrated by other research. Um, yeah. Um, so were there reasons given why people weren't adopting the internet? Like, why, why don't they want to? Is it price or something like that? Yeah, no, so totally fair question. What, so you bring, you bring up the issue of price. That, so when I started doing this, I was looking, I, I figured, that, so, sorry, backing up. To answer your question, yes, there is data that gives the number one reason why people aren't using the internet or adopting the internet. And when I first started looking at this, I thought it must be because, well, they live in a rural area, they, maybe they don't have access to the internet, or maybe they live in a rural area and they're lower income and they don't wanna pay higher prices for the internet because there are fewer suppliers out there where they live. Um, as it turns out, the most common reason for that people identified as being their most important reason for not adopting the internet was lack of interest or a perceived lack of relevance that the internet had for their lives. That's that's an interesting response because, I mean, I wrote about it in the, in the disruption article. Uh, the internet's kind of vital to the future of our economy. A lot of technologies in the article, like self-driving cars and you know self-propelling drones and stuff like that, they they need some measure of connectivity. At least consumer drones do um, to work, and people use it to get jobs and to and to and you know other ways of working. And these people are just completely not involved in this, and they're falling further behind. And you know they don't want to catch up in a way because they don't want to use the internet. So that's kind of a distressing answer when we're considering you know, how to get these people into the fold of uh, people who are more likely to get work, for example. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Uh, there have been other studies that talk about how uh, access to the internet, uh, access to different devices um, helps people uh, get seek employment because so, so, much of, so much of applying for jobs and looking for jobs is done online now. Um, and so that, that gets into not just a matter of internet usage, but also different kinds of device usage, where you might not want to be looking for a job on your phone. It might be better to be doing that on uh, a desktop or a laptop. Yeah, it's harder to go through the classified section in 2016. Several things that interest you. Sure. Oh, man. I, want, I do actually wonder if some of our listeners, viewers, even know what we mean by that. That's, a, that's also a fair question. That is a distressing True. thought. It's like Craigslist, but on a newspaper. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, I probably just shattered our levels. Um, is there any indication of, uh, just wondering, in terms of the occupation breakdown uh, of these residents who are indicating their lack of interest in the internet? Yeah, fair question. So for my research, no, there wasn't. Um, what I can tell you is that in doing uh, tabulations and then the regression, we did look at rates of uh, workforce status. And in urban areas versus rural areas, 
there are more or there are higher rates of there's a higher proportion of people in rural areas who identify as unemployed or not in the workforce, meaning they're um, unemployed, not looking for work or they're retired, they're on disability or some sort of thing like that. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, go, go, uh, having a job, being employed is definitely a correlate with Internet adoption and Internet use. And so rural areas uh, having greater shares of people who are not going to work uh, could definitely be a driving factor in explaining why people in rural areas are adopting at lower rates. Interesting. So I think, I think that sums up what we've put out recently. Let's go ahead and give the folks something new um, and talk about what, they, what we're going to be putting out in the near future. So, um, Shane, why don't we sure. start? Why don't we start with your article that's going to be coming out on DC statehood? If you could just give us a little preview of that. Sure. So this November, in addition to everything else that will be on the ballot going on, uh, residents of the District of Columbia will be able to vote uh, on whether to become the state of New Columbia. Uh, this is uh, an interesting tactic. It is non-binding. It, like everything else in Washington D.C. Ultimately, this question uh, will have to be decided by Congress in the end. Um, but this is a way for residents to make a political statement. Uh, D.C. is overwhelmingly pro-statehood, pro-independence, have been fighting for it basically since the founding of the United States. Uh, so in the weeks ahead, uh, I will be compiling and working on a generic um, article on what issues are actually involved? What do we hope to achieve? What are the policy implications uh, of the different uh, state and independence uh, measures that are being considered? Um, in addition to that, we've got some other great content. Uh, we have an article coming out quickly on uh, landmine eradication in Myanmar. So we're, we're all over the spectrum here at GPPR. Yeah, and the landmine topic just became highly salient, not necessarily in terms of Myanmar, but Obama's visit to Laos. Laos, thank you. Yeah, um, where that that's that's now become a major uh, or a larger issue in the press cycle. Is that right? Exactly, that's right. Um, he committed to uh, doubling uh, the commitment of the United States aid to eradicating uh, bombs, most of which uh, we left behind during the course of the Vietnam War. Uh, so this is definitely something that's present salient in the modern era. Yeah, uh, one of the one of the big topics of discussion in that article is the just the very nature of landmines as weapons, where they're ready to go off at any time, and they're completely indiscriminate. They're totally amoral, um, and so they have major human rights implications in the sense that they don't, they can't, a landmine can't distinguish between a combatant and a non-combatant civilian. Um, and most, uh, most people who are in favor of human rights um, think that that's an important distinction to make. I think another key distinction in this regard, too, is unlike in cases like Laos or like Cambodia, where you've had conflict in the past, but now you've had several decades of peace, you know, Myanmar, despite the uh, democratic inroads that it has made with the United States with its first uh, elected civilian government in over 50 years, uh, still has uh, quite a bit of internal conflict between the different ethnic groups, the government trying to exert its authority. And so this is one case where you have landmines in combination with ongoing conflicts. And then, in addition to that, um, we're going to be working with geopolitics a little bit, which I definitely think it's worth mentioning. Um, hey, friends, Susan Rice is coming to campus. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, National Security Advisor to President Obama, Susan Rice is coming to campus. Um, we will have a primer coming out um, 
where Geopolitics is doing this great series called The Exit Interview, where they have cabinet-level uh, persons in the administration coming in to talk about Obama's legacy. So we're going to have a primer uh, along the lines of the theme of The Exit Interview uh, coming out before she speaks. And then we'll also be covering the event and uh, doing maybe some reactions and some analysis to some of her major talking points. So that's definitely interesting. And there's a brand new class of geopolitics fellows, mm -hmm. um, one of whom you've almost certainly heard of. Uh, he was a, well, I mean, I think, I think most people, especially in the district, have heard of Martin O'Malley. And I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry. Sorry. Um, still, this is our first podcast. We're still working on the rapport, <laughs> the rapport thing. Um, yeah, so definitely. So we'll we'll be sitting. Uh, Delaney will actually be sitting down. I will. I'll be with asking them their hopes and dreams and all that jazz. Yeah. It's an exciting time on the hilltop. I'm definitely pursuing my dream of starting an Irish band with Martin O'Malley over the course of this semester. Oh, yeah. oh that would be so <laughs> that great. Happen, I think. Do you have a, Do you have a name? Do you have a name in mind? I'm gonna let him pick the name. I need uh, a. I can't do my usual political incorrect band name. <laughs> when it comes to Martin O'Malley. That's true. He is a, he is a he, he still he still has a future future to protect. Um, definitely definitely be on the lookout though for the for their traveling band. Um, great. So we're gonna, we're going to go and wrap up with a final segment that's going to be a continuing theme uh, of the of these view from the hilltop podcast of so that happened ellipse at the end. Uh, so when I say it, say it again less definitively, so that happened. That did happen. Mm. And we're going to go around real fast and share just the, our, our favorite thing from the week or just the thing from the week that we have, that has just stuck with us. Um, be, it, be it a matter of controversy, be it a matter of greatness, whatever. In some way it has stuck with us as a matter of notoriety. Um, you want to kick us off, Shane, with your sure. so that happened? Absolutely. So uh, continuing the discussion I started last semester with talking about down-ballot issues, uh, this week the Supreme Court of Michigan decided to not allow voters in that state to vote on marijuana legalization on the upcoming ballot. Uh, unfortunately, they had some issues with their signatures, so they were not able to go forward with that. However, this fall we will see five other states, Arizona, Maine, Massachusetts, Nevada, and California voting on marijuana legalization. Uh, so far, polling has been pretty positive uh, in all five of those states. Um, obviously, already we have four states who have gone forward with this, as well as the District of Columbia. Uh, and I think the big kicker here is uh, California. You know, if you remember back years ago when California, as the seventh largest economy in the world, I think it is. Sixth now. Sixth. Oh, Bre that's right. Brexit. Thanks, pushed us Brexit. Up. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> Brexit pushed us up. Anywho, uh, you know, when they went forward with car emissions, the market itself is so big that we have to adjust. Uh, you know, I feel like it may be the same case when it comes to marijuana. Hmm. Um, the ballot initiatives gained support from uh, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, who is already uh, seeking to replace Governor Jerry Brown within a couple of years, has ambitions of his own. Uh, in addition to that, of course, we also have four states voting on medical marijuana, uh, Arkansas, Florida, Montana, and North Dakota. Uh, they would join a list of 25 other states in D.C. that already have that on the books. So the medical marijuana votes, that's a totally separate uh, yes. classification and separate set of votes from these five states that you're talking about? That's correct, yes. Hmm. Uh, do you... Are, was there a reason that you know of why the or rationale why the Michigan Supreme Court did not allow 
Yeah, ba basically, you know, if you if you try and start a campaign to have a ballot initiative like this uh, go forward, uh, there's pretty strict rules. They vary by state. Um, you usually have a specific window. In this case, it was 180 days where you have to amass a certain amount of legitimate signatures, mm -hmm. uh, and they just weren't able to do so in this case. <laughs> but again, you know, that doesn't really stop the momentum that uh, the country's going through right now in regard to this issue. I can hear the listener jokes now as to why the ballot proponents couldn't get enough signatures. Uh, we'll, we'll leave that to our fine listeners. Yeah, I, I, have to, I have to say good job as, as someone who used to, used to watch... That was, that was today, bro? Exactly. As someone who used to watch a fair amount of Jimmy Fallon, good job facilitating this discussion without sliding into the pretty easy humor that comes along with it. I, you know, that's the thing. You know, that's kind of the go-to. Even among people like President Obama, he'll joke about it. But at the same time, we've still got hundreds of thousands of people locked up in this country, costing billions and trillions of dollars in uh, prison fees. So, that's true. you know, people joke, but ultimately, at the end of the day, this is an issue that we're going to have to address. Totally, and, yeah, the yeah. and especially in the case of medical marijuana, that's I mean that's a real issue for people living with chronic pain who can't get access to relief. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So though that happened. Um, I'll I'll go ahead and go next. So mine's a little bit less serious. Um, so Matt Lauer happened, <laughs> and I I I have real mixed feelings about this. At first, I, I was mad because. I am not a huge fan of Matt Lauer. Um, the the example I I always point to is um, a couple years ago, um, not the most serious journalistic event, but he was interviewing Pete Carroll, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks football mm -hmm. team, and American football team, and um, they had just lost the Super Bowl, and he's sitting down with him, and he he's at, he has the following exchange of just describe your feelings when that play didn't go according to plan. And, you know, Pete Carroll gives gives a certain kind of answer, fairly honest, and then Matt Lauer just t takes a beat and goes, did you cry? And before he can answer, he says, where did you cry? <laughs> whom, whom, who was around when you cried? It's an important like, detail. I'm just like, know. Jesus, Matt Lauer. <laughs> like, this isn't the Olympics. This isn't Bodie Miller. Like... Pete Carroll is not going to cry on command for you right now. My favorite was when he was asking Zach Efron about the one time when a condom <laughs> fell out of his pocket. So, you know, real hard-hitting news going just, on. Just legendary moments in the career of Matt Lauer. Anyway. But, but, most, but most recently, and the reason he's come up in the news this week, is because he was the moderator of the presidential candidate forum. And it is safe to say that he has been widely reviewed poorly. Um, because for a number of reasons, he, he uh, spent too much time on Hillary Clinton's emails, then cut her off when she was answering other important questions. You know, little ones like what would prompt you to put troops on the ground in combat situations. No big deal, right? Um, and then in the case of Trump, he let him get away with what mo a lot of people feel are pretty bald lies, where Trump said that he did not support the war in Iraq, and he uh, referenced an Esquire article that came out 16 months after the invasion of Iraq. Um, but then there are interviews prior to the invasion where Trump comes out in favor of the war in Iraq. And Lauer didn't call him on any of these things. And the reason I have mixed feelings about this, so he's getting panned as a result. And the reason I have mixed, mixed feelings about this is because, like, we know who Matt Lauer is. Matt Lauer has been in the game for decades. He's, yes. a, he's a stable commodity. We know what he's good at and we know what his limitations are. And I'm just kind of like, NBC, why? Why did you sacrifice Matt Lauer to the presidential 
commander-in-chief candidate for him. Like, all the criticism he's getting is deserved, but we sort of knew what we were getting with Matt Lauer, right? So, like, Matt Lauer, don't do this again, but, you know, I feel for you. I, I feel for Matt Lauer yeah. this week. I, I felt bad for him, and then I watched it, and I was like, hmm... That, that was terrible. But no, I agree with you. I don't, I don't know who decided to assign him to that, uh, that forum. Maybe they just wanted views. They want to generate some buzz. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be the buzz about like journalism these days, just trying to get as many views as possible by saying the last thing Trump said instead of analyzing it. But not here. That's, that's, not, no, no, no. that's, that's not what we're we are. We are policy people here. We're academics here. Rigor. Rigor. What do you got for us this week, Austin? I got something that's purely political, no rigor at all. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to call it the tightening. Oh, man. Because I'm really getting tired of words that end with ending. I'm really tired of Garen's. You know, first there was, uh, I'm hardening on immigration. I'm softening on immigration. You know, I think there will be a softening, maybe. Oh, no, right. it's actually hardening. I'm a, my position is evolving. <laughs> yeah, just too many INGs. But anyway... This, this is not a so that happened really, because it's, it's been like a three-week story. But there, this story has really shown the difference between pollsters and academics like 538 and pundits. Because when, um, when the Trump campaign announced that uh, Steve Bannon and, Bannon and Kelly and Conway were joining the campaign, all the pundits concentrated on Bannon. Oh, he's an alt-right person. He's going to make Trump you know, sound terrible. He's going to appeal to anti-Semites. All of these stories about how Trump was going to, you know, start, you know, double down on being Trump. Sure. 538 was like, well, they also got Kellyanne Conway, who's a great pollster and, you know, an expert in her field and a moderate voice. And people ignored that part of it. They ignored her. And as people were writing these op-eds and talking on CNN about how Trump's campaign was definitely going to lose and it was crashing... Trump's campaign got much better in terms of messaging. They did that whole immigration thing, which actually kind of worked. They, they've gotten better about not saying anything super controversial like the con thing. And Trump's polls have gotten better. And the tightening thing only started to be talked about like three days ago, hmm. even though this trend line has been happening on 538's you know, model for the last two weeks. And only now are pundits saying, oh, wow, Trump's really you know, caught up. And the reason why they're like side blind, you know, were completely blinded by this news was because they spent too much time, you know, chasing the wrong story. Mm -hmm. So that's my so that's happened. Just a journalistic failure compared to um, pollsters who are thinking, you know, may, let's wait and see what happens before we make conclusions about this campaign change. Sure. Do you, do you have any any estimations as to why Trump is starting to poll a little bit more favorably? Well, um, I think what happened was uh, Bannon. Bannon's much better at um, much better than, than than people think. Like, if you actually go on Breitbart, there's very little like direct saying that things are bad. They use a lot of facts, and then they kind of spin them in, in, a, in a way that makes you want to believe that the entire world is against white men. <laughs> you know, it's not straightforward. So Bannon's actually a very good political operator, a very good political fighter. So when he was hired, it wasn't just that Trump was suddenly going to lose all control and say every terrible thing that went into his head. It's that he was going to say terrible things, but be a lot more tactical about it. And that's really what we've been seeing the last three weeks. And I think that, once again, pundits have underestimated the influence that um, Conway has had on Trump. Um, he's been 
trying really hard to sound more like a generic Republican candidate. And Nate Silver from 538 has been saying this over and over again. A generic Republican candidate would probably be doing very well against Clinton. So all Trump needs to do is be normal. So I feel like that combination... All Trump has to. Yeah, well, yeah, you say it like it's an easy thing. He's been getting there. And that's why I think the polls have been closing in slowly. And that's why I think the tightening So it's been, it's been the normaling. <laughs> the normaling. Let's just, yeah. let's make everything sound like a horror movie. Hashtag normaling. Hashtag normaling. Side note. Here first. Anyone else think Stephen Bannon looks like Mad-Eye Moody a little bit? The, yeah, I, I I get it. You don't think so? As our as one of our resident Harry Potter experts, you don't think Steve Bannon looks like I would have to see Steve Bannon. I okay. don't actually know what he looks like. Fair enough. Right. I am an expert. No. Kevin, Kevin says yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and lastly. Okay, so my piece of news is the um, bill uh, containing appropriations for Zika virus research was shut down because... Certain other things were snuck into the bill about Planned Parenthood, and so the Democrats voted against it. And I just think this is a terrible example of something that is not a politicized issue and should be receiving bipartisan support being taken down by, um, you know, a partisan issue that has no business. Involved. So this was what these were supposed to be research dollars appropriated, but yeah. there was a writer about Planned Parenthood attached to the bill. Yeah, basically, as far as I understand it, it was appropriations for Zika virus research, um, and there were some poison pills snuck into the bill that got it shut down by the Democrats. I don't understand why there isn't why the CDC can't just get money without a political vote on it, but. Uh, that's not to say, I mean, you know, there's supposed to be a lot on this. You have a very limited window here before everyone goes out to campaign. Yeah. This is just one of a handful of issues, mental health. Not to mention Merrick Garland. Poor Merrick Garland sitting around D.C. twiddling his thumbs. Poor guy. Oh, um, yeah. Merrick Garland, if you want to come for an interview, we'd be happy to have yeah. you. Yeah, got nothing else better to do. There's a seat right here. <laughs> we'll, we'll do this. Um, but yeah, so basically... We need to fund Zika research, you guys. <laughs> I think maybe if it comes to DC, we'll start seeing some changes. That's how it works. Because because before, uh, like leading up to the Olympics, folks were talking about uh, Zika as being like this far off, you know, exotic mm-hmm. epidemic, right? So, but right, exactly. That's really really far away from the United States, right? <laughs> but there have been reported cases in the U.S. now. Is in that right? Florida and I, mean, I believe Texas. That's right. So, I think I heard about Pennsylvania. Like it's it's yeah. getting close to us, and there are still lots of mosquitoes around here. I'm gonna start wearing long sleeves, you know. When I was in California, there was actually a reported case in Sacramento. Oh, so yeah, not 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 good. Well, um, so, so that happened. So that happened, <laughs> <laughs> or, or didn't happen rather. Or yeah, so that did not happen. Maybe that should have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> fantastic. Anyway. Thank you all for joining us on this lovely Friday evening. She is Delaney Luna. He is Austin Sabo. He is Shane McCarthy. And I am Justin Goss. This has been episode one of GPPR's View from the Hilltop podcast. Our senior interview editor and crew of one right now is Kevin Barslow. Kevin, we hope you get a big staff and lots of friends in the, in the coming weeks. But we appreciate you, man. Yeah. Thanks, man. Have a good evening, everybody. Have a good evening.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter, at GP Policy Review.